Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University sports podcast, where we talk about the business of sports with all kinds of interesting executives, entrepreneurs, investors, athletes, and futurists. And we have one today. And of course, I do that every week with my partner, Joe Favorito. Hello, Tom. What's up, Joe? Uh, One of the topics you and I love to delve into always is media. And today we are uh, welcoming Rich Greenfield, who is a self-described media futurist and an analyst at BTIG, doing a lot of really interesting commentary and research and analysis of the sports and media, well, the the media business first at large, um, uh, and also sports and um, has done some really interesting things in this field the last couple of years. So welcome to the show, Rich. Thanks for having me. I think it's kind of hard to talk about the media business and Sports is so integral to, to media that it's it's hard to ever talk about media broadly exactly. without, you know, talking about sports. Yeah, yeah. Who so, cares about the rest of it? <laughs> movies, who cares? Well, no, so, but I do actually yeah. want to cover that because Rich is on top of all the trends, mm-hmm. for example, lately with Spotify and the IPO, mm-hmm. what's happening with the theater business. Uh, look, you pull one thread, the others start coming apart. And, and that's, I think, what we're seeing in the media business. We'll come to that in a second. But It always strikes me as like a Jenga game. You know, you think of like, <laughs> exactly. you know, the whole media puzzle is a Jenga game. And you're getting right. down to that piece where if you pull the sports piece out, what happens to that kind of <laughs> right. legacy media industry if you pull that last Jenga peg out? Right. So uh, that's a good metaphor. But let's start out with um, a little bit about you. How did a college history major become a media futurist? Look, I think we've always had a, a real fascination with uh, how industries change. I came right out of undergraduate and started at Goldman Sachs working in media stock analysis. And so all I've ever done at four different firms is cover media stocks. And, you know, I guess what was a media stock in 1995 was Disney uh, when I came out of undergraduate. Now, you know, call it 23 years later, what's a media company? We could talk about a long list of companies, but Facebook, Amazon, Apple, you know, all of these are that that kind of collision of tech and media. And so what we've really tried to do is analyze as tech and media collide, what what happens in this disruption? Who wins? Who loses? How does it change the game? How does the whole ecosystem shift? And so it's very hard to figure out what's going to happen to these stocks over the next few years without making, trying to really analyze where the whole business collectively, not just the individual companies, but where the whole business is going. And so we've really started to take a look and take a stab over the last four or five years, really trying to think out broadly about how the tectonic plates of the the industry are changing. And um, I think that leads you to making kind of predictions about the business. And so, you know, we've thought a lot about kind of legacy media declining uh, and a whole rise of new players, this whole disruption being caused by, you know, this incredible array of technology. And it goes well beyond. We're not just talking about television content or video content, as you think of it, normally disrupting the legacy business, but it's people watching video games. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the disruption is coming from so many different angles. You know, time, it's a war for consumers' time. and, And the war is being fought not in the sense of HBO versus CBS or Netflix versus HBO, but it's like all the different things that you could possibly do with your time. Mm -hmm. And that choice pool is far, far wider than it's ever been. And I think when you sit down, I don't care whether you're sitting in front of an Apple TV or a Roku or your smart TV, just look at the options you have. It's an incredible amount of choice that the consumer has. 
why be bored? I mean, if you don't like the, you know, if you don't like the North Carolina game that's on right now that's being aired, go do something else. I don't care whether it's Netflix or Twitch, and there's just so many choices that you have. Well, speaking of Twitch, there, there was a big milestone last week. So at this Fortnite event in Las Vegas, which I'm sure you've read about, uh, they broke the record for concurrent streams. I think it was 667,000. It featured the most popular personality on Twitch, Ninja, yep. Tyler Blevins. Um, and there was an interesting article uh, this week about how that event actually might have been a harbinger of things to come because it integrated kind of the superstars with the fans. The fans were able to compete with the, the big star of the game. Um, but when you think about that number, Rich, 667,000, that's a lot bigger number than many smaller sm- sporting events are on cable TV by a pretty wide margin, actually. Mm-hmm. Look, what, what fascinates me is the this is not just watching. You know, this is people can play these games. You know, like I, yeah, I can play, um, I can play football, I can play baseball. But I can't, you know, the, the idea that you could transcend and kind of be a quote-unquote winner is pretty much impossible for me. Um, you think about gaming and, you know, you can watch, you can learn, you can interact with the stars, mm-hmm. you can talk to them in real time, chat with them, and then you can actually try to play yourself. And if you practice enough, a lot of these people can win. I mean, the, the whole participatory nature, it, it is incredible, like, how it's changed. You know, like, we were... I was fascinated, you know, the, the NCAA tournament was on a Saturday night, you know, the Final Four started on Saturday night, whatever, a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. from when this podcast airs, and dinner ended, and we were having Seder dinner for the holidays, and all of the adults went in to watch the tournament, and all the kids went into the back room to basically watch each other take turns playing Fortnite. Mm-hmm. And they came in and checked the score and were curious what the score was, but there was no interest in sitting through a multi-hour set of of television when you can get the highlights whenever you feel like it, they'd rather be playing Fortnite. And, you know, that's what it just hit me that like, this is so big. And it's not, it's just one game. There's lots of games. And so there's many examples of this, but I I think it shows you how the, first of all, the definition of sport, like what is a sport? Mm -hmm. I I don't even know exactly know how we define a sport anymore. Mm -hmm. It's clear to me that, you know, something where you're playing, interacting and watching kind of feels like it fits the definition of a sport. They can, you know, Fortnite, if you ask them, they consider themselves a game, not a sport. But mm-hmm. it certainly feels like a sport when you're looking at how it's, be, you know, turn on your Twitch app on your phone at any moment in time. And there's hundreds of thousands of people watching different streamers. Obviously, Ninja's the biggest, but there's people watching, you know, there's 5,000 watching this one and 10,000 watching this one. And it's fascinating to just see how you're competing. You know, sports are competing with just such a far wider array of choices and the, we, we've seen the same thing that happens to primetime television, right? Like primetime TV is competing against Netflix and HBO and Amazon Prime. But now you've got on top of all of that pressure, now you've got the pressure of, well, look, there's all this gaming that you can consume uh, and just watch. You don't have to play. You can just be a watcher. Mm-hmm. So, so two things. One is before we talk about the future, which we're going to talk a lot about where it's going. Can you just take us back for a second and say, where did this kind of, like, when you look back at a tipping point, one of the things that, that's come up before with esports is the parallel to mixed martial arts. Because 10 years ago, when the UFC, and I, and I was involved in MMA at one point, but 
when the UFC really took off, one of the things that they talked about is we are the only sport that is both aspirational and inspirational because you can go and train in a gym and you can become George St. Pierre over time, but you can also do the same things. And that was kind of the first real interaction. People said NASCAR as well. But when you look back, what was kind of the, the, did you see a jumping off point as you've come through the last 25 years where holy crap, all these things are suddenly changing? Or has it just steadily evolved and it's just evolving faster now? Look, over the last, call it five or six years, you know, your bandwidth has gotten far better. Mm. You know, you've all gotten, you know, we're all sitting recording this podcast with supercomputers in our pockets that function and basically enable you to do almost anything, right? I mean, the cures for boredom, as I like to think of them, I mean, you used to come home. And I think of when I came home from high school, what was the cure for boredom? It was either going out playing with my friends, maybe sitting around playing a game of Stratomatic, or it was, you know, turning on the TV and flipping through the channels for something to watch. Movies. Remember yeah. the 430 movie? I do. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, you think about it now and you've sort of got a, a limitless possibility. And even when you're watching sports on TV, let's just say you have the TV on, you probably have your phone or laptop in your hand mm -hmm. and you're probably doing three other things. You're not pass you're, you're not just sitting back watching. You're literally doing multitasking as you're watching and so I don't think there is any like specific inflection point per se, but I think it's the combination of improved bandwidth, mobile penetration, uh, or IP connected devices even more than mobile because it's the connected TV as much as it is the, the mobile phone. Uh, and on top of that, just an explosion of choices, right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. just so many different things that you can do. I almost think now like, why be bored? Why waste time? Like if you see, you know, uh, something isn't interesting. I don't care whether it's whatever the show is on ABC tonight or whether it's, you know, Sunday afternoon football. If it's boring, there's just easy choices. You don't, you no longer need to waste your time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so, so I think that kind of active, activating behavior has something that has sort of evolved over the last seven or eight years. But I think, you know, look, you're up to what, 57 million people have Netflix now you know, broadband penetrations in 90 million homes. Like, I think you kind of have hit the point where so many people are being accustomed to these activities. You get a Roku. You realize how easy it is. You realize that, hey, there's all these things that you can touch and do without, you know, turning on the linear TV and getting stuck in that program guide and watching 18 minutes of commercials an hour. Right. And the acceptance of user-generated content by large sure. audiences. So yep. with the cost of production having gone to pretty much zero – the cost of distribution pretty close to zero. The long tail of content has gotten so big, the choices okay. are just endless. Anyone can create a Twitch channel, right? right. It's yeah. not hard to do. Right, and if you got some talent, you build an audience. It's just like YouTube. I mean, so in, may, in many ways, like you almost, I would almost think about YouTube as the inflection point, right? Mm -hmm. Like YouTube, I think the first video was what, 13 years ago. And so if you think about, you know, that as a, think about how the, the, creation and development over the last 13 years of YouTube has led to a flood of content throughout so many different things that have come after it. But in many ways, that's probably the, the start of this content, this IP streaming of content era. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Rich, let's talk about the, the elephant in the media room right now, which is the, the, uh, the attack on, not attack, but the, the slow decline of pay television, the old model and the rise of alternative media options, including over-the-top packages, skinny bundles, et cetera. 
So you've been quite vocal on this topic over the last couple of years with your hashtag good luck TV, good luck legacy media, good luck skinny bundle. You're, you're a hashtag poet in my opinion. Um, but seriously, let's get your current take on that because it just seems to be changing in ways that no one had predicted a few years ago, at least the speed. Well, look, you know, if you think about the TV ecosystem from a very high level, it was an incredible business, right? Like you got essentially everyone in the country, every major household. You know, you, ha you had, I think at the peak, you had 100 million multi-channel TV households. So people paying for cable or satellite essentially peaked at 100 million. At the time, there was 115 million total U.S. households. So, you know, virtually everybody, yeah, there was a few people who either couldn't afford it or just simply didn't want it. But basically, everybody who had a television who could afford it was basically subscribing to a package of, you know, call it 80, 90, hundreds of channels paying 80 to $90 a month. Like, it was an incredible business. And it led to this explosion of content and programming. Unfortunately, the average person was only watching, you know, call it 10 to 12 channels. I think the average household, it was like 18 channels, even across the whole household. But you were paying for 100, 200 channels. Mm -hmm. Of the 18 channels being watched in a household, probably only one or two shows on each channel, you know, yet it was being programmed 24-7. So if you think about from a consumer standpoint, you were paying for lots of channels you didn't want and for lots of content on the channels you did want that you didn't want. Highly inefficient business model. You were being forced to consume an increasingly heavy load of advertising to help pay for all of that content you didn't want. And the price point to consume all of that content kept going up seven or eight percent a year, uh, kind of religiously. Mm -hmm. And then someone comes along and says, hey, how about we just offer you the content that you want? We may not have everything, but everything we do have, you can have no commercial interruption, no channel, no linear experience. Watch whenever you feel like it. Watch when any device you feel like it. Like it was just, it was, a, it was an arbitrage in many ways on the inefficiency of the legacy TV bundle. And so that's why we came up with the hashtag good luck bundle is that the bundle's just challenging. The bundle's not going away. I still think we're going to be sitting here doing this podcast in five or 10 years and the vast majority of people are still going to take a bundle. You know, we're still probably talking about half the country, I suspect, will still be in a large bundle. The question is, the math only works for the programming entities. So the cable networks, the broadcast networks, they rely on everybody paying in. You know, ESPN needs 85 million people paying eight or nine dollars a month. They don't have a plan for people, for 50 million people paying into that bundle. And so the question is, when you have so many choices of content that are cheaper, unless you're a diehard sports fan, why are you subscribing to an 80 to $90 bundle? Like it's actually hard. And you think, I look at my charter bill. So I'm a charter spectrum subscriber. I pay between my two set top boxes in my apartment, my DVR fee and my broadcast surcharge I think the total bill is $46 a month just for the boxes. Not, I'm not talking the TV service. I'm not talking taxes. I'm just talking the bill for the boxes, the DVR, and the surcharge for, for broadcast. That's a 46. The boxes alone are $40. Netflix costs $10.99. And you get a whole heck of a lot of enjoyment. Do you get live sports? No. 
there'll, so there'll always be a group of people that want live sports. The question is, to really answer your come full circle to your question, what percentage of the country has to have live sports? You know, right now, almost everyone's paying for live sports. But what if that number is 50%? What if it's 60%? Maybe it's 30%. Who knows mm-hmm. what that percentage is? And again, I come back to what's a sport because if the youth generation thinks Twitch is a sport, well, Twitch is free. Mm-hmm. So compare buying Twitch versus, you know, think about, look, look what Hulu's done. E- even Hulu, which has created a lower cost live TV experience, you can watch Hulu next day. So if you don't care about live sports, Hulu only costs $7.99. Right. You can get it on discount for $5.99 most months. If you want live sports or live content on Hulu, you've got to pay 40 So it's basically telling you that, look, if you don't mind waiting, you can pay almost nothing. So if you're not a sports fan, the cost is really low. If you are a sports fan, the cost is really high. And so I think you've, you've got that kind of push and pull. And the reality is it's just it's hard. Consumers have been empowered with so many choices now. I don't see how you reverse this trend of once people realize there's all these choices at lower price points, if not with things like Twitch and YouTube for free, I don't know how you're ever going to get the same level of penetration you've had in the past. So, Rich, we've got it's really interesting to watch right now the big players jockey for position with these so-called skinny bundles, because increasingly they've been using sports messaging, sports content as an enticement. Sure. In the way they're and let's just define for the audience or the listeners what we're talking about. So we're talking about Comcast, DirecTV as the traditional bundles, bundles right. versus the YouTube TVs, the Hulu Live, Sling Lives, TV, Sling right. TVs, right. Exactly. etc. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Thank you for doing that. Um, but increasingly, even with Hulu's decision to get involved with the NBA through the TNT games this, uh, this postseason, with uh, getting involved with the NHL for the Stanley Cup playoffs, with YouTube TV having announced its specific sponsorship of the NBA Finals, which is in another five or six weeks, on top of them having sponsored specifically the World Series, they're cherry-picking the best content of live TV where sports is broadcast to deliver the message that there's a better way. And even if you look at the messaging, they're signaling that it's a better experience. And it's funny, uh, Randy Freer spoke at the World Congress of Sports, mm-hmm. and the first thing he said when he was asked about that is, hey, look, we know exactly where we have to go to get subscribers. If they're going to let us go there to get the subscribers, what are we supposed to do? Say no? So so the question for Rich is, yeah. is that working based on, I know I know a lot mm-hmm. of these specific numbers are not broken out in earnings calls and things like that, but do you, do you have a sense that that's working? Are people buying these skinny bundles? Well, you probably have four to five million subscribers now to skinny bundles, you know, two million on in the Sling. Aggregate. Yeah, but two million are on Sling discreetly. That's the lowest price point. YouTube TV, I'm uh, uh, sorry, uh, Direct TV now would be another million. Mm-hmm. So you know, two of them comprise you know a healthy chunk of that you know four to five million. The others are all what I would call I don't want to say nascent, but they're a much earlier stage of development. First of all, they're definitely working because from the standpoint of consumers, they've got you know. Each of them has at least hundreds of thousands of subscribers, so I would consider that they're working. The, the challenge is, I think the biggest challenge right now is, is people realizing that there's options out there, that you, know, that, you, you know, that you can disconnect your cable. Yes, your broadband bill probably goes up because when you kind of remove the bundle from your cable provider, you're going to pay more for standalone broadband, but you're still going to save money. And I think the cross-platform experience is tremendous. Now, look, for someone that has never been 
a buyer of multi-channel television, $40 price points, which is where most of these things are at, probably still isn't terribly exciting. It's cheaper than 80, but it's probably still not a compelling price point when you're used to YouTube, Twitch, and you know, those, or even Netflix. Or even like, Netflix and this $10 yeah. a month thing, even Spotify or yeah, Apple Music. Yeah. But, I, but I would say that, the, that the, the challenge is, and I think where the real disruption from what we're talking about comes in, is that you know, canceling Comcast or canceling Charter or canceling DirecTV now, or sorry, canceling traditional DirecTV, were all horrible experiences. So, you, know, you would have to call up. First of all, you have to find the phone number. Then you'd have to call up. You'd be put on hold. You'd probably be transferred around to four or five people. They would give you multiple different offers to make sure you didn't cancel and beg you not to leave and keep putting you on hold to check with their manager to see how much better of a deal they could get you, hoping that you'll hang up and cancel and cancel your request to cancel before you actually do it. And then if you actually you know, persevere and you actually get to that finish line of, yes, we're definitely canceling. I want to get rid of my equipment, sir or miss, you realize you have to go down to the service center and wait online to return your equipment. So you have to disconnect it yourself and bring it into the call center and drop it off. And, you know, the friction was so high that most people just gave up at some point and took whatever offer they were offering them. And they have your credit card. So they can just keep pinging you. In this case, with these virtual MVPDs, these skinnier bundles, as as Tom pointed out, the beauty is, let's just say you love March Madness. Mm -hmm. Sign up for DirecTV now. Heck, sign up for YouTube TV. You get a free month free. Sign up for the month, cancel at the end of the month. It takes three clicks, three seconds. As fast as you could say cancel, you can cancel YouTube TV or DirecTV now. And so I think people are also going to manage their subscriptions very differently. You don't need to be a subscriber for the full year. So if you're only a fan of one sport, this is better than – it's not just going from $80 a month at Comcast or $100 a month at Comcast to $40. You could just do 40 for three or four months of the year or even a couple months of the year just for football season and then use Netflix and Amazon for the rest of the year. And so it's not just cord cutting or cord shaving. It's sort of intermittent or what I would call kind of cord continuity becomes a big kind of question mark in the future because you you were locked into not just big bundles with lots of channels, full days, 24-7 programming, but you were also locked into not canceling really. Right. All of that's being removed. And so now you can manage. And I think we're all used to in a world of, you know, digital applications, we're all used to being able to go on and off very easily. We use something, we don't use it. Like it's just easy and it's becoming part of consumer behavior. And so I think the other real challenge here is how do you make someone a full year subscriber? And that's going to be a major issue for all of these kind of skinnier bundles where they introduce this behavior. It sounds great right now. You're a networking, oh my God, there's a new person willing to pay us for our channels. But you're also shifting someone from a set-top box environment where they can't cancel to a virtual environment where they can cancel whenever they want, whenever they feel like it. And that is a very scary proposition. And we haven't seen the kind of overall effect of that yet. But I think if you looked at over the next five years, one of the things I'm most worried about is that transition and people going in three or four years turning around going, can't believe we let this happen to ourselves. Right, Rich, is there any evidence yet that people are cherry picking, as you described it, saying I'm going to get Netflix for one month and I'll binge watch all the shows my friends have been talking about and then I'll just unsubscribe with a couple of taps on my phone? Well, Netflix sort of dealt with that issue. I mean, when House of Cards came out, I remember there was a whole bunch of, you know, what I would say very well-respected publications came out with stories saying this is ridiculous. Like they're going to come out with House of Cards. Everyone's going to binge it over the next two weekends the next two weeks, and then they're going to cancel. 
And so what was the point of that? Netflix basically gave away a free month and everyone canceled before they even started paying. But that's why now there are basically a show or two coming out every single week from Netflix all year long is that the only way you blunt this churn risk is by continually interesting someone. When you start looking at the skinny bundles, and remember, Netflix is only $10.99 a month. When you start talking about products that are $40 a month, and the key reason why you're subscribing is you know, a single sport or two, mm-hmm. uh, that, I think, is going to be a very high-churn product. And so we've already seen Sling talk about, certainly, they've been vocal that churn picks up when TV se- traditional TV season ends. I think, to your point, you were correct in saying, I think a lot of these VMVPs or skinny bundles, as they're known, have really marketed themselves as sports services. The minute you do that, there's very few people that are sports fans of all sports. And so I think all of that lends itself to higher churn, which is, I think, in some ways why some of these entities are starting to go into unique programming that can only be found on those platforms because they're trying to figure out some way of mitigating that churn risk. Right. Is there some level of irony at work with these guys advertising on mainstream traditional television? to deliver this message? Am I, am I overthinking that point? Well, I don't think the millennial who's playing Twitch right now is the core audience that's going to subscribe to these things. I think what you're really looking to do is say, look, you've got still 85 million people paying for a big bundle of channels. They're probably paying too much. The easiest way for YouTube TV to switch a customer from Comcast or Charter over to YouTube TV is to advertise to the people that are watching TV and overspending. I mean, right. look, there's really very little reason why you should, I mean, if, you have a, if you're paying your cable bill and listening to this podcast, you should really be going like, why are you not switching? Mm-hmm. Like, if you haven't used YouTube TV or DirecTV now or Sling, I mean, these are really good consumer experiences and they work across platforms. I mean, again, YouTube TV's got an unlimited cloud DVR. I, I was paying $20 a month for my DVR right. beforehand. So like, the, the ability to not just save money, but to have a superior consumer experience, I think most people just don't realize these options are as good as they are in terms of the breadth of content. But, but that, that said, I understand that intellectually, but if the cord cutting continues specifically uh, within and around the sports business, to your point a few minutes ago, that we would see a continued decline in the subscriber bases of the networks, the pay television networks, which will have... Uh, ostensibly an adverse effect on their ability to compete for sports rights in the future, correct? I think that's fair. I mean, I don't, it is, if you think about the the industry overall, you've been losing, you know, most networks have been losing between 2 and 3% of their sub base a year. Advertising, despite a pretty good, robust economy, advertising is flat to down. So your revenues for your programming business are no longer growing. And certainly your costs, whether we're talking sports rights or entertainment, you know, primetime programming, all of it's been going up. So you're in a pretty poor position long term. Now, you know, there's always the shot that sports rights costs go down like they did in the UK recently for Premier League. Mm -hmm. The NFL and cricket in India certainly are not boding well for, you know, that relief that I think a lot of these companies need. Not to mention, I think there's a whole wide array of companies in Techland that are increasingly interested in sports rights. No one's really done anything what I would call tremendous yet. I think everyone is still kind of peering over the ledge, kind of thinking, considering, learning, bidding on rights, not ready to win yet. Because if they wanted to win, they have the balance sheets to win. Like all of the major tech companies are far larger than the traditional media industry that we're analyzing. So if tech wants to win, they're going to win. 
it's just a matter of, you know, does, you know, does someone want to put up massive dollars to take one of these contracts away? And there's no proof of that yet. Right. But when you look at the rising um, content budget, content acquisition budgets for companies like Netflix sure. and Apple and Amazon, and you think about the bankability of media content, sports with its built-in audiences has a huge advantage over, let's say, just traditional speculative movies or television shows. Sure. So but doesn't it seem like an inevitability look, the that NFL, they make that decision and say, yes, we're in? I think the NFL will keep Sunday on broadcast TV for the foreseeable future. I really do. I think reach and the success of Sunday Night Football, Thursday Night Football, and Sunday Afternoon Football is going to keep that on broadcast you know, well into the next decade. What happens to the future of Monday Night Football is really interesting because if you wanted to not just dip your toe in the water, but if you really wanted to change the TV ecosystem in a meaningful way, Monday Night Football already moved from broadcast to cable once. Mm -hmm. Moving from you know cable to the internet doesn't seem crazy. It's risky for the NFL. There's no doubt about it. They get you know call it. Uh, $2 billion a year from ESPN. So the dollars are significant. But on the flip side, you know, this sort of feels like if you're a tech player, this is your one big shot to see how you can change the game. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, change... If you want to really dislodge, you know, you, we talked at the very beginning of this about kind of pulling that Jenga piece. You pull that sports piece out of the Jenga puzzle, the game collapses. Uh, and so I, that, that's what, you know, to me, what we're thinking about in terms of like, how could the future kind of shift meaningfully is if somebody comes in, we've already seen Netflix destabilize the whole ecosystem on the entertainment side, right? Mm -hmm. Like all of those, you know, ratings are collapsing for, you know, primetime TV, advertising's falling, all because there's so much great content available on demand. And, you know, Shonda Rhimes doesn't work for ABC anymore. She works for Netflix, the parallel in sports would be, why does Monday Night Football have to be on ESPN? Why can't it be on Amazon? And you'd say, oh, because ESPN has incredible reach. But okay, the, the reality is ESPN's reach for a game is still far less than NBC's. Mm -hmm. Heck, even Thursday Night Football outrates Monday Night Football because it's on broadcast TV. So while the, so while the leagues figure that out, to think about the future, so all these rights deals coming up in the next couple of years, they're also experimenting, I would call it experimenting, with a lot of their own direct-to-consumer products. So everything from... All of the leagues. Yeah, all of the leagues are trying, right? So, and most of those... Well, they want data. They want to know who their right, consumer so, so that's is. Right, so that's where I'm going with my question. So two things. Number one, do you think the leagues is currently constructed um, in terms of the leadership and expertise can play this direct-to-consumer game successfully? Or will they need to evolve to truly compete on, on that basis? Because it is a different game. They're all learning. Uh, this is early. I mean, th these are all of these leagues have basically been wholesalers. Right. Just taking the check and letting somebody else run their business. But it's 2018, and if you don't know who your customer is, you've got a problem. And so I think they're all waking up to it of like, We've got to figure out a way to kind of know who our fans are, be able to speak directly to them, know their names, know their credit cards, know, know essentially everything about them and their preferences. That's not easy to do for companies that, again, have never been in the, the retail business. But 
you know, look, they're all starting. I mean, look what the NFL has done with Snapchat, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so now you don't, you know, you don't go to watch highlights on for the NFL on on Snapchat onto the ESPN channel. You just go right there. The games are literally posted right to Snapchat directly from the NFL, mm-hmm. you know, in partnership between Snapchat and the NFL. Right. We were talking about highlights. I mean, the leagues are pushing out highlights directly onto Twitter. Right. And they want real you to, time almost, yeah. almost real time, and they yeah. want you to subscribe to their, you know, to their account, and right. that means they're going to know who Rich Greenfield is, and they're probably going to figure out that I'm a Met fan, and they're like they're going to know who I am and what I'm interested in. That's something the the leagues have never had, and so look, it is very early. I think they're they all recognize the importance of this, but they also have that challenge of look, this is not their core DNA. I mean, this is very different. Than just selling your rights to somebody else and letting them run with it. Right. I think the the angst that some people we know at Major League Baseball had over the exclusive Facebook game the first week to see what that was going to be like and what the audience was going to be like. By the time they got to week two and three, it was just Wednesday, so no one really yeah. even noticed. And and for baseball to make that move, which was I'm sure shook a lot of buildings on Park Avenue for a little while. Um, you know, it shows that they have to evolve. I mean, it's sure, no but it's one, it's one game. And it's one game, but it's you a know, test. Out of a lot of games. Like, yeah. this is, to me, this really feels like overall a test. Yeah. But look, they need to figure out. And look, should it be through Facebook? Should the MLB be doing it themselves? Like, I think all of these platforms are mm-hmm. trying to figure out what the right solution is. Right. And then my question on that point, Rich, is uh, in terms of collecting this data and making it actionable, is there a happy medium when that is being done in concert with a major tech company? In other words, if you're doing something with Facebook, yeah. you're getting much of the data, but uh, Facebook's also getting much of the data. I'd be and, careful. And, I don't know what you're getting. Like, well, that, well, that's what I'm suggesting. As opposed to having your own D2C product, where, where at least on the surface, that is all yours, 100%. But you have to go out and, and market it? But you have to go out and market it. First you got to deal with the churn and all that. But well, that's, that's even more than that, so you, they don't know who Tom is. There. Right. They don't know who Tom is. No. They don't know who Rich right. is. Right. So they have no starting point from really knowing right. who we are. Well, so, if you subscribe to MLB.TV this afternoon, you're, they're going to get everything they need from you, right? But, <laughs> you know, that's different than finding you through you watching a game on, on Facebook Watch, right? Correct. So, but I guess my question is, in terms of the, the sharing of the data, the value of the data, can, can there be a, a happy partnership between the rights holders and the tech companies? No, because I think the tech companies essentially look at this and go, why aren't we just in this? I mean, we have plenty of cash. Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon. None of these companies want for cash, right? Like, that's not their problem. Right. So... Just like Netflix has come in and picked out the best, you know, best projects, entertainment, talent, and literally just saying, okay, you used to work here, now you work here. When you run that same analysis on on sports, the reality is um, everything is fungible. Everything's, you can acquire anything, right? Like, essentially, if you're the high bidder, you're going to, I mean, yes, there may be the rare case where someone doesn't want to sell to you. But in most cases, the high bidder is going to win. And so if tech wants to be there, the tech's going to be there and the tech's going to win. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think they're going to use right. that data to inform their decision making, right? Like they're going to know that, like Amazon ran a test. They clearly understand now, okay, even just a simulcast, how many people watched? Right. How long did they watch? Why did they tune out? What did we learn? 
Do those people buy more NFL merchandise over the course of the next right. year? Do those people buy more NFL tickets over the next year? Like what, you know, it's using the data to make a much wider range decision than the way a traditional media company can make exactly. that decision. And also potentially I mean, to- Media companies are relying on Nielsen data extrapolated from, <laughs> you know, a relatively small- Bad cent- numbers chasing bad numbers. Correct. Um, but that said, you know, are, with, with all that, with all those insights, with that data collection, are they going to be in a position to reinvent how the actual product gets monetized? So it's not just reliant on ad pods of 30-second commercials that young people are rejecting. I silenced them. Well, That's no, not what I, just, I don't know what to do. So. <laughs> Look, the, there's no doubt in my mind that the, the ad load on TV is far too high. You know, there's a great interview of Eddie Q from Apple from, I want to say about 18 months, probably 15 months ago. It was early 2017. And he was asked for about Apple's new efforts for programming. Are they going to run advertising? And he was like, well, I don't really watch ads other than maybe during live sports. My kids don't watch advertising. None of our, my, none of our subscriber base or consumers of Apple products is telling me, hey, it'd be great if you had advertising. So I don't think we're going to do advertising. You know, I think the reality is, look, advertising... The, the the hope has always been that you can get targeted advertising, bring the ad loads down, and be able to use that as a way to lower the subscription cost and create a better consumer experience. Well, we've been talking about this for 10 years. Exactly. And, and so changed. all these VMVPDs have launched, and yet you know none of them have much lower price points because of targeted advertising. Most of them are losing money because they're overspending on their content to try to take subs away from the legacy ecosystem. Like it's just a tough, it's a tough business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna um, wrap up with a couple of final questions in about two minutes. Sure. But I gotta ask one more. We'll do a lightning round. Here we go. Um, we're talking to media futurists, so let's mm-hmm. talk about the future. So thinking about five years out, so 2023. Let me read down a list of. You still going to be at Columbia? <laughs> I hope so. Uh, uh, let me read down a list of tech and media companies and give me your quick answer on whether you think their importance to the sports business, low, medium, or high. So importance to the business as potential partners and supporters. Let's do it one by one. Yes. Okay. Amazon. I think Amazon is one of the most interesting companies in the space in that they're all about the bundle. It's just a different bundle than we're accustomed to. So it's music, it's video, it's shipping. They want to be a bundled player. And what fits well with a bundle, especially a subscription bundle? So think about it. It's a subscription mm-hmm. fee, and they have the ability to sell highly targeted advertising because they know everything about you and what you're interested in. They can ship directly to your home. Heck, they can ship to your car, I was reading yeah, today. to your trunk. To your trunk. So, like, <laughs> you think about the power. You know, they can put the, you know, the cooler of beer in your trunk right. before you head out and right. buy the ticket with the jersey already yeah. in, the, in the trunk of your car. Like, Amazon's like the perfect, you know, company from the standpoint of being a bidder on sports rights and being more relevant to the, the, the business of sports. Right. I think Amazon is, you know, if you were to put like the most likely to be disruptive in this space, Amazon has to be at the head oh, of that list. Start. So I take that as a high. Or a very it's a good thing high. you started with A. <laughs> really? so. um, Twitter. The problem with Twitter is Twitter loves live content. To me, Twitter feels like 
the sports center of 2018. I think by 2023, it's going to be even more so. I mean, I think the sports talk radio, which I, I grew up in Long Island, so I grew up listening to WFAN mm-hmm. and Mike and the Mad Dog. Too. And yeah. That's what I grew up to. You know, I think about, like, where does that happen today? And it feels like that type of conversation happens on Twitter all day long all over the globe with Mm -hmm. people debating each other. And so I think Twitter is very relevant to the conversation around sports. Like, to me, it is kind of the living, breathing sports center. And somebody – look, I I keep hoping somebody will just kind of create the sports center for Twitter Mm -hmm. and make a run at – because I think the sports center as a a brand on linear TV has died. Like, I don't think kids care. I don't think – no one's going home from school on the bus home and goes, oh, I got to go watch SportsCenter. Right. And so I keep waiting for someone to kind of take Twitter to make it into that or use it for that okay. purpose. But I think Twitter's going to be relevant. The, the challenge Twitter has is it's a relatively small company. Right. So they're doing, you know, $2 billion of revenue a year. Their ability to go out and spend multiple billions on sports rights is heavily right. constrained. Right. And they're not particularly profitable. So, like, their, their ability to buy sports rights right. just isn't in the very, league. Di- very different scenario. Then we're talking about Amazon right. that has tons of capacity. Right. All right. So the next one is, um, speaking of a reinvention of Sports Center, Snap. Yeah. Which has made some interesting forays into sports the last few years. Look, Snap is primarily a communications platform. They're really good at it. It's incredibly sticky. People send gazillions of snaps back and forth all day long. It's visual. They have, you know, they are trying to prove... That, they're, that they can create content, you know, tied to that communication so that, you know, in between snapping your friends, you're consuming media content within the kind of with this never-ending Snapchat discover section that they've, you know, built out. I think the jury is still out. I mean, I think that's the challenge for them. They have a lot of content, try to how to surface it, how to organize it, how to keep people increasingly engaged in it is still a struggle. But I, I'd be very surprised Snap hasn't been willing to spend any type of real dollars on kind of acquiring content. And again, they're, you know, they're a last year sub a billion dollar revenue right. business. Their ability to buy sports rights or be a major player in the kind of, again, the business of sports, even in five years, I think, you know, feels relatively constrained just given the size of the company. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, the players that are going to matter are going to be bigger companies that have, have the balance sheets and capacity to do it today. <laughs> and could attack this opportunity over the course of the next five years in a a very methodical way. A good segue to Facebook. Sure. Facebook's got a massive, you know, they're doing 12, 13, 14 billion dollars of revenue a quarter. If Facebook wants to be a huge player in sports, it can be. You know, they just hired someone from Eurosport to run their sports rights acquisition Mm -hmm. overseas. They're showing kind of lots of signs. You, You mentioned the Major League Baseball. You know, no advertising, right? It's kind of cool. Like I started watching with the week one, I started watching a Met game and somebody literally messaged me on Facebook a few minutes later saying, I didn't know you were a Met fan, you know, because we're connected and it knew it and it put it together. Was and it it's Cambridge it, Analytica? <laughs> no, but it showed to, it showed my friends that I was watching the Met game. And, you know, I thought that kind of the so much of sports viewing and you know, what's fun to go to a game with your buddies, right, is that it's social. That we're going mm-hmm. to a game with your kids, that there's that kind of social kind of co-experiencing it. And that idea that Facebook can bring to bear of watching something together and communicating. Like, I'm not sure I so much care about watching everyone else in the whole world communicate about the game, but if I could communicate with my friends or my Mm -hmm. close friends, like that's an interesting idea Mm -hmm. of watching remotely, but yet still all being connected. It makes it a more fun experience. I will tell you though, 
Facebook has been kind of loath to put up the types of dollars that are required, not just for sports content, but for any entertainment mm-hmm. content. Like you don't see Facebook putting up, you know, I mean, Netflix is investing $8 billion in entertainment content. We haven't seen anything that would illustrate that Facebook's willing to put up billions of dollars. Now, look, I think they could, they, they also don't have a subscription business. So they're a little bit challenged of like they had, to pay for any of these sports rights packages, like if you were going to do Monday Night Football, but to not have a subscription package makes it harder to understand. Could you really make the math work on any of these things right. without a bundle, purely on advertising? And I think that's the challenge for Facebook. And I know we didn't talk about it yet, but I think it's the same sort of issue for Google of like mm-hmm. primarily advertising based companies. We'd mentioned Twitter before. When you're primarily an advertising based company, sports rights become a harder issue to digest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You sort of need a starting bundle, which is why, yeah. you know, when you mentioned Amazon first, my, you know, the, the lights go off in my eyes because right. I go, they already have that bundle. Right. And if all of a sudden Prime costs 110 versus 100, I don't think anyone leaves mm-hmm. and you have offered more value to consumers. Yeah, no, that's a really good, good point. Okay, a few more and then we'll wrap. Yeah. Um, will Apple and or Netflix get into sports in some fashion? I think Apple putting multiple billions of dollars to work right now as we speak into high quality premium entertainment is a pretty good telltale sign that ultimately they end up in sports. It's hard to imagine once you're investing, you know, the types of dollars to do the amount of content they're going to be putting out next year. Call it, I think already by our count, 10 original series are coming out next year Mm. on Apple. We don't know how they're going to be presented. Is it a new app? Is it just as across all Apple platforms for free? Will it be on Android? We have no idea. But Apple's clearly serious about investing billions of dollars a year into content creation. Once you're in the premium content business, well, I would turn the question around like, what's the most premium content in the world? Sports, right? right? Like so- Live sports, yeah. Live sports, especially the NFL. So how could you sit at Apple and not want to be in this business? Like, I've always thought it'd be amazing. Imagine if instead of Sunday ticket being on DirecTV, imagine in 2020, because the NFL has the option to change who controls Sunday ticket. Imagine Apple controls Sunday ticket. And Mm -hmm. you have to have an Apple TV, but anyone with an Apple TV can get Sunday ticket. Right. And it works across your iOS device and works on your Apple TV. Yeah, and a frictionless registration process. And, you know, look, they they already have 30, they have, what, 40 million people paying for Apple Music. They've got, I don't know how many people paying for iCloud. And, I mean... They're Apple Care, like they have products that are, you know, show the potential of building a new kind of quote unquote bundle. Mm-hmm. They haven't bundled them all together right. yet, but I think the signs are there that Apple could. You mentioned Netflix. First of all, I would never say never. So I, I hate the word never. You're putting a five year time frame around it. You know, we already, Netflix is already at 150 million subscribers. Uh, when you think about, sorry, 125 million subscribers, if you think about, the five-year time frame that you just laid out, it's certainly conceivable that they could have 250 million subscribers, 300 million subscribers. They could be at 80 million subscribers in the U.S. So, you know, do you reach a point? Sports doesn't make sense today. They don't have the balance sheet. They're losing $3 billion. You know, their free cash flow drain is $3 billion. There is no math right now over the next two or three years that Netflix has the balance sheet to Mm -hmm. go buy sports rights. Mm -hmm. But in the five-plus-year time frame, if the mode is big enough and they're able to keep raising price the way they've shown their ability to raise price over the last year, where subscriber growth accelerated even as the price went up, I don't think it's inconceivable that longer term, 
I wouldn't say this, this round of rights, meaning MLB, Sunday Ticket, NFL. I'd be shocked if if Netflix was a bidder in this round, but in that following round, you know, call it the mid to late two thousands. Um, I think anything is possible at that point in time. Okay, one last one. Disney. You know, Disney's in a really tough spot because they've, you know, you, you mentioned this breaking apart of the bundle. And it's not collapsing. It's kind of bleeding. You know, you, this is not a hemorrhage. This is like a slow, consistent bleed. But the problem is you've got this slow, consistent bleed You've got ratings that are collapsing because people are just not watching linear TV. There's so much competition. So it's not just you know, it's not just ESPN that's under pressure, but it's every form of primetime television. Mm-hmm. So you've got your advertising revenue declining because viewership's declining. You've got your subscribers declining. Your sub fees have been going up to compensate for that. The question is, is it sustainable? You know, with smaller bundles, with consumers going in and out of bundles over the course of the year, can you really grow revenues? And so even if you can tweak out a little growth, like let's just give them the benefit of the doubt, they can still strong arm the existing distributors, get higher fees, benefit from some of the virtual MVPDs. The reality is you're talking about low single digit revenue growth. How do you pay for an increasing array of sports? And so they're really in a tough spot. The, the right decision is to take all of their content, not just ESPN, but all of Disney's content and go direct to consumer. Like that would be the, the bold, all in, go for it moment. Take all of their movies, all of their sports content, everything, and just literally reposition the company as a direct to consumer company with the world's best array of content. Mm-hmm. But that is so disruptive to their right. business. Right. They're so scared of doing that. They'd rather launch ESPN Plus and say, hey, keep subscribing to the bundle, paying your a month where ESPN is embedded at $8 or $9, where Disney Channel is embedded at $1 or two. And on top of that, pay us $5 more a month for English League football, for 30 for 30, for super rugby. Super rugby. Like, pay us more. Like, they essentially, they want to have their cake and eat it too. If you think about what Steve Jobs always talked about, is like the importance of disrupting yourself. Like, Disney doesn't want to disrupt itself. It kind of wants to, and they even talked about this when they launched. ESPN plus Jimmy Pitaro, the new CEO of ESPN, was pretty clear. This is a complementary product. This is not a disruptive product. I think the question we're all waiting for for Disney is, are they going to have the guts to disrupt themselves and really go, quote unquote, all in on streaming? Because they have the capability of being successful. But I think it's very hard to be successful when you're competing against players that are all digital, that have all of this data. You know, It's not like Netflix is saying, hey, we're going to offer you this $10 a month subscription, but we're not going to give you our best content. You still got to go buy that over here. It, you know, it's very, very difficult to, to imagine success when you don't put your best foot forward and go all in. And so I think that's the challenge. So right now, I think the risk is Disney's vulnerable. There's a lot of players we just talked about who many of them want sports rights. Most of them have market caps and cash balances that dwarf the Walt Disney Company. Even if Disney's successful in buying Fox, they're sort of a pimple relative to companies like Google and Amazon right. and even Facebook. And remember, Disney doesn't know who Tom is. They don't know who Rich is. They have no idea that I watch ESPN. They know that a male among this age watches this maybe, you know, if the data from Nielsen is actually correct. But they don't know who I am. Mm-hmm. 
the companies we were just talking about in the tech world, they all know exactly who we are. They know everything about us. Right. They may even have our credit cards on file. Like they have every piece of information. Sure. Sure. And so the they're in an increasingly difficult position where they can keep the rights or they can keep, but it, it's going to cost them more. So they're going to they're be, think about it, they're going to be spending more as their revenue growth is either slowing or declining. So it's a very, very difficult business model for the ESPN in the future. And one of our biggest concerns is how do you, there's no right answer. The right answer probably is rather than the slow bleed, take the bullet now, like literally take the pain now, disrupt yourself and just go for it and don't look back. Okay. All right. Before Joe asks the last two questions, which sure. we're going to have to do pretty quick because I know we got to wrap in a few. Um, uh, will Disney have, and, and you're only allowed to answer this with one word, Rich, will Disney have Monday Night Football in 2023? No. Okay, Joe. That was easy. <laughs> he said so, one word. Yes. <laughs> so um, two questions we'd like to ask everyone. One is, how do you stay current? Where do you get your information from? What places do you go? And then we have a lot of young people who listen to this or people switching careers. What advice do you give people coming back? So how do you stay current and what advice? I read a ton. Uh, you know, I read literally. I mean, I think... I probably follow 2,000 different sources on Twitter, and you know the beauty of Twitter is it does an increasingly good yeah. it does an increasingly good job of surfacing the content I'm most interested in. Mm. You know, newsletter-wise, probably the things that I'm religious about getting every day and trying to read. I don't read them every day, but I try to read as much as I can. Uh, you know, I would say um, in the morning I get Axios, I get Media Redef, I get uh, the skim I get. Um, who else do I get? I get the Pacific in the afternoon. They do a good media kind of tech blend. And in the evening, I love uh, reliable sources from Brian Stelter. I think, mm -hmm. you know, kind of th there's a bunch of kind of, you know, um, you know, there's a bunch of Twitter followers on the sports media side that I think are extremely helpful that we follow. But, uh, you know, I think in terms of my biggest daily digest, like where I spend the most time sourcing data points, it's by far and away, it's Twitter. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's Same even answer. close. <laughs> yeah, that that's, mm -hmm. it seems to be the yeah. answer every week yeah. at this point. Yeah. And then, Look, and we try to curate a lot of them. So, I mean, I think if people are trying to stay current, like follow us on Twitter and we try to do, oh, a, absolutely. We try to do a really me, good job of curating say, interesting uh, data points. For, for anybody listening who doesn't know this already, Rich is a great follow and a prolific and I would say poetic tweeter uh, with his observations on what's happening and all these topics around this business. It's really great stuff. Uh, in terms of your second Rich question on... Rich BTIG, by the way. It is, Rich BTIG. But I think in terms of advice, you know, I think if you're looking at this space, I mean, I think this is an incredible moment in time where the legacy businesses are under pressure. It's very hard for them to make the right strategic decisions. And you're seeing the birth of new brands. I mean, you know, look at the, look at the power of a brand like Barstool. To, to engage consumers and kind of own the consumer and that direct consumer brand. Look at what House of Highlights has done. You know, you mentioned at the very beginning, look at someone like Ninja. I mean, this person is making half a million dollars, if not more, a month playing video games because everyone is watching him. That's incredible. I mean, there's so much opportunity away from the traditional ecosystem. So I guess if I was giving one piece of advice, it would be really think far and wide about what a sport is and what sports media is, because I think the definition is changing pretty dramatically. And I think the kind of the, 
historic boundaries uh, of what was considered sports media uh, are dangerous to kind of hold yourself to. Right. If you were if you were 25 right now, would you rather work in a traditional league or a, an esports company? Knowing what you know about yourself. I, look, I'm fascinated by gaming overall. I wouldn't even say esports. I just think gaming yeah. overall yeah. is just. And again, it's that idea of you're playing, you're watching, and you're actually interacting. Like, there is no way in which, historically, you haven't been able to, you know, I couldn't have a relationship with, you know, Keith Hernandez on the Mets when I was growing up. But you can actually have a kind of a pseudo relationship with these, you know, with these esports um, stars right. that are playing whatever, you know, whether it's Ninja on on. Um, on Fortnite or, you know, pick your game. But, like, there's a star of each of these games. Like, Cloud9 is, you know, has an Overwatch team. Like, there's so many different ways that you can engage directly with the players of these sports, the, the successful players. And that's just something that never happened before. And you see, you see some, of, some of the same thing that's happening in the entertainment world where, you know, YouTube stars you can follow on Instagram and you can actually sort of interact with them live on Instagram when they post things. And so, like, there's this living, breathing digital world of, uh, of stars or influencers that fascinates me. And so I think from the standpoint of like, who's taking mindshare and who's losing mindshare, clearly the traditional ecosystem is losing. I mean, it doesn't take, you know, just look at the simple math on ratings, viewership is declining. And I think as viewership declines, that's why subscribers are declining, right? Like people are watching TV less they're not going to pay the same price right. they used to pay for it. I mean, people would be crazy to pay the same price for something they're using less. Right. All right. Well, that's actually some really good insight at the yep. end. And the idea of, you know, as we, we talk to young people um, watching the trend lines as you look at opportunities. And obviously, you'd want to be on uh, something that's trending up, not necessarily trending down. So as Bezos likes to say, point. you want to be leaning into the future. Yeah. So it's figure out how you lean into it. the future. All right. Well, Rich Greenfield, thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking to... Media futurist and analyst at BTIG, Rich Greenfield, about what's going on in the media biz and sports. Um, fascinating conversation, Joe. Always, always. Um, really good stuff, Rich. We really appreciate the time you gave us. Thanks pleasure, for having pleasure me. Pleasure to have you on the show, and I hope you can come back to my class again one day. It's one of the most popular ones I've done. Uh, we did it last fall. We'll have to. We'll do it next fall. Sounds um, great. So we can find everybody can find Rich on Twitter, Rich BTIG. Anything else you want to mention or plug for BTIG? No. I mean, okay. I would love it. Thank you. Actually, one thing I will plug for you is that your research reports, most of which are accessible, correct? For students? If you log in, yeah. If you log in through BTIG, create an account for BTIG research, there's some really valuable content in there. I use it a lot for my class. So We love it. We love students. Yeah. Thank you very much, Rich. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time on The Cusp Show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and my host is Joe Fabrito. Our production assistant this week is Columbia student Reese Eisenman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. You can also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash The Cusp Show. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at CU underscore SPS sports. Also, you can find out more about our program, Columbia University Sports Management Program, by going online at sps.columbia.edu forward slash sports hyphen management. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.